welcome to the uh, Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, John Cribs, and I am super excited to uh, get dive into this episode because we've got a fun one for you today. Uh, sort of a laid back, fun conversation about some fun movies. This is for the people who thought our episode on Come and See was maybe a little bit too heavy and uh, don't want to hear about war atrocities and loss of childhood and that kind of thing. We're going to be talking about uh, the James Bond movies. We're going to be talking specifically about the James Bond films from the 1960s, the first series of films produced by Eon Studios. And joining me is Mr. John Arminio, self-described counter monkey, headquartered at Comics Connection in South Central Pennsylvania, a writer of film and comic reviews and host of several comic book reviews that can be found on YouTube and other social media outlets. Uh, Mr. Arminio, how are you today? I'm great. Uh, thank you, Mr. Cribs. It's a thrill to be on. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Of course, honor and a privilege to have you. And I just wanted to ask you before we started, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Cribs. I expect you to die. <laughs> With that, we can get started. If you hadn't uh, had a response to that, I think we'd have to hang it up right away. But uh, uh, this is great. Um, the way this originated, we should uh, mention, John, is that uh, I was on a live stream on James Hancock's um, Kiki with James with Bill Tech, and we talked about the Roger Moore era of Bond films. Uh, you've done several excellent wrong reel uh, podcast episodes, clearly one of my favorites on uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, thank you so much. That was, that was a blast. That was a fun one to listen to. You did metal movies. That was a lot of fun. Um, but then after this specific live, live stream, we uh, were kind of do, doing a little DM back and forth, talking about the Bond movies and just talking Bond a lot. And I realized it would be fun for us to just go through as many of these films as we can. Mm -hmm. I'd love for this to be the beginning of like trying to talk about every single James Bond movie eventually. That would be a dream. <laughs> I feel the same way. Um, but of course we're going to have to start at the very beginning. We're just going to run through these all chronologically. Um, starting with 1962 with Dr. No. And the way we're going to do this, I think, you know, it's going to be very straightforward. I think we're just going to give our impressions of these films. I'd really like to kind of talk about these films individually in a way that kind of gets into the individual films as opposed to looking at it as the whole series. But obviously you can't disconnect these films from each other. They're, you know, just, they're just too connected. Um, but at the same time, I think doing them one at a time is a way that's kind of going to appreciate the kind of aspects of these films that, you know, sometimes kind of get left out when people are talking about who's the best Bond girl or who's, you know, what's the coolest gadget or things like that. I really just kind of like to dig into each one of these individually and kind of talk about them on their own merits. So with that in mind, uh, let me, let's start with you, John. Tell me what your thoughts are on Dr. No. Um, I, I love Dr. No. It's definitely um, the most relaxed, I guess you could say, of the uh, early Bond films because there are, you know, musical stings when Bond is walking through an airport or checking into a hotel. Thrill as he walks through the store. Um, but I, I love all that business. Um, I, I think uh, Connery is, he was described um, by, you know, casting him as uh, moving like a panther and seeing him you know just <laughs> strut through this film 
um, I just think is uh, magnificent. Um, he's just so charismatic, uh, so dangerous, um, but also you can tell he's very smart. Um, I love the locations in this film. Um, and I love that it's really a spy movie. Uh, so, you know, if we're going to look at this uh, as a film in in and of itself, it, it did start the like 60s spy craze. And uh, I mean, there are some, you know, uh, culturally uh, uncomfortable moments in this film. Like there's a couple actors in um, yellow face, not great. Um, but the performances of those roles are uh, fantastic. Doc knows a great character and, and I love seeing him uh, at dinner with James Bond and saying, you are just a stupid policeman. What a villain. <laughs> He's great. And I think you're right. I think this is, this one's fun for being just a, really uh, just a, a more than typical spy film where you've got guys following people, you've got double agents, you've got uh, secretaries with uh, radios inside their boudoir and uh, you've got blind assassins. I mean, just everything about it, even before we meet Bond and his, you know, his finery and his, uh, his, uh, his know-how, <clears throat> his gadgets, which just it's just got so much fun stuff right away. And it it is definitely uh, it feels very grounded in reality because you're faced with this sort of small time assassination uh, tit for tat uh, in, in the opening when you know this sort of like middle management uh, British intelligence official is killed and along with his, his secretary and then you know you're kind of taken step by step that leads you to a supervillain. Um, and you know a, a a plot in involving a nuclear device, obviously. And in but, Jamaica, we should mention this. Most yes, yes, and in Jamaica. Yeah, that's where uh, Fleming uh, lived. It's where he wrote in his uh, special compound called Goldeneye. So, I guess the producer just thought this was a good place to start. But I agree with you too that there's a lot of uh, great intrigue in this film. There's a lot of a lot of serious sleuthing. You've got um, Bond booby trapping his room as a really uh, fun scene where he puts the hair across the door. He's got the powder on the briefcase to capture any fingerprints, right? And he's he follows the lead of the the receipt that he finds at the the dead operative's house, which kind of uh, leaves that uh, leads him to this villain and this kind of plot that's happening underneath everybody's nose. Uh, I love that he notes that Dent was uh, Professor Dent, who's in league with Doctor No, is the only person who could have possibly seen Strangway's new secretary, which kind of makes him suspicious. So. You get all of that stuff, and I think it's a fun buildup. I think it's also kind of a flaw, though, of this story that it's super simple. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very single-minded story. Like there's a mystery at this at, the, at this place, so they go to this place. You know, and then uh, for me, the movie kind of falls apart once after we've met Doctor No, and he's a cool character and everything. But then it's like, oh, that's that's all it is. Is they're just kind of shifting. U.S. They're using radio waves to shift U.S. missiles around. It seems like why are all these people dying for this secret? Uh, doesn't seem like as big a mystery. I guess the reveal maybe is not as satisfying. Isn't it? Yeah, because yeah, once you realize that Doctor Knows Hideout Crab Key um, is the place that nobody's supposed to go, it's like okay, well, obviously that's the place we're supposed to go, but. I don't know. I, I think the sort of the, the meeting of Ursula Andres uh, as Honey Ryder 
um, I think is, you know, one of the most iconic scenes in cinema history and seeing their inter- interplay, I think is, is interesting. Um, yeah. Coming out of the sea, which Fleming in his book describes literally as Venus de Milo, where, you yeah. know, emerging from the waves. <laughs> um, and I think that's a big thing too, about these films, why they are so hard to uh, pull apart from each other is because of the iconography, you know, because yeah. of these moments that just are our bond are these big, huge moments that we're all going to remember. And they're all going to make us think of these specific films. Um, and, and, and I mean, yeah, bond has maybe the best introduction of any character in history in this film. And it's just a, an example of how effective editing like makes a scene, you know, the, he liked a cigarette bond, James Bond. It's, it's it, yeah, and he's just at a, a guy at a card table winning money. Uh, but that's something that's you know going to live in film history forever. This is just when you think about it, uh, just this the convergence of talent that came together to start this series is staggering. That the ingredients are all there in this first movie. You've got John Barry, Ken Adam, Peter Hunt, Maurice Bender. Bob Simmons, you got Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell playing parts that they're going to play for the next 20 years. Uh, it's just amazing that all these things came together. And like you said, that introduction where you've got the Peter Hunt editing cutting from Sylvia Trench over to Bond, and then that um, that that uh, theme song kicks in. Yeah, and yeah, and Peter Hunt, I think, is Peter Hunt and Ken Adam are probably the uh, unsung heroes of this era of Bond. Like if you know Bond, you know Ken Adam and Peter Hunt, but, but I think in the uh, larger cultural landscape, uh, their influence is, is pretty enormous. Uh, that, and I think a lot of people uh, aren't aware that, that they you know exist. Oh, absolutely. I think that Ken, uh, uh, Ken Adam, who's production designer of the film, uh, his contributions just are incalculable. And it's easy for people who are just following the story or, you know, noting those iconic moments to not think about the scene where Professor Dent walks into the uh, the room with the tarantula and how beautifully, beautifully constructed that room is. Yeah. How Ken Adams is just from all over this movie and all over the franchise from this point on. Yeah. And all those... Um rooms in Jamaica like the the most I think famous set is is when um you know uh the wicked professor is being interrogated by Blofeld and he's sort of cowering in the, in this room that sort of looms over him but um and 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 that's what actually probably got him hired to do Dr. Strangelove for Stanley Kubrick uh, the next year but just every like hotel room in Jamaica, there's just like shutters and slats and like slow fans turning everywhere that gives so much atmosphere. Um, you know, as it's as heavy with atmosphere as any film noir, but it's, you know, in, in bright color and it's a, it's a singular looking and feeling movie. Absolutely. And I think that scene too goes a long way towards making Dr. No seem like such an incredible villain, such a great menace because long before we see him, we hear him, we hear his voice kind of echoing in this room. Uh, Dr. No, I'm sorry. I said Blofeld. I'm sorry. Oh no. Yeah, no problem. And um, just this detached, almost inhuman quality of him having this echoey voice and, and no face and everyone talking about him with such dread that I guess that's another reason why it's sort of a letdown later in the movie when he seems more human, you know, because yeah. Ken Adams, you know, uh, de- design in this film goes a long way to making it seem like a huge world. And Dr. No is seeming like such a otherworldly presence within this world. 
but also if if you were to ask me which layer I would want to live in, which uh, layer would you want to live in, John? Yeah, it's it's Doctor No's layer. Like it's he's got this great aquarium. He's got a fireplace. It seems cozy. He's got some great art. I don't have to manage like a thousand guys and and a. He's got a like an, an entire hotel room within his lair, <laughs> like yeah. or like an entire hotel building in his lair. Yeah, or pond and um, uh, oh my god, Ursula Andress, um, help me out, Honey Rider, Honey Rider. Thank you. Get uh, escorted to this uh, gorgeous room where they're the prisoners. <laughs> you know, they they're staying at this uh, Hilton suite basically within Doctor No's lair. I know there are a lot of. Uh, uh, extravagant layers later on in the Bond films where you have to ask yourself what's the living situation here you know yeah. like how are people living in a volcano you know but where, uh, where, where are all those jumpsuits stored <laughs> exactly if this is supposed to be a big secret operation like are people going home where they clock it in every day um, but Dr. No's got to figure it out he's got a place where no one would want to leave because it's a literally a luxurious evil base yeah <laughs> and again, thanks, Ken Adam, for for that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned you know some of the stuff that dates the film in terms of the uh, yeah, unfortunate decisions um, to have some actors play yellow face. I, I think there's no reason, for example. I mean, this is the kind of thing where I'm not I'm not criticizing. I'm not like uh, bring down like any PC uh, police on this, but I just want to know. Why couldn't they have made Miss Taro not Chinese? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, it's real weird. Yeah. No reason within the plot. In the Fleming book, which has some unfortunate passages in it, um, Bond figures out who's working for Dr. No, basically by racial profiling. But anyone who is Chinese or half black, half Chinese, he suspects because they're working for Dr. No. So that's how he knows in the book that Miss Taro is, you know, must be working for because she's a Chinese character. But in the movie... There's no reason at all. If Zena Marshall is the best choice of actress for the role, make the character English. Yeah, and <laughs> her, her hair is so obviously a wig. It's, it's distracting. Uh, so, yeah, you could have easily made the character uh, white. Um, and one of the things that runs through Fleming's books and that, and that this film carries over is like very antiquated tropes. Like... Dr. No was basically a yellow peril villain in a 1960s like film. And so at this point, the stereotype is like 40 years dead. Mm. Uh, so mm-hmm. why are we, you he's know, a Fu Manchu basically. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you see this in Goldfinger um, with like the, your hero on, on a table with the saw blade coming towards him. So at least with Goldfinger, they kind of just it up with a laser beam. Um, but here, it just like, oh, no. Let's just let's just get that uh, Fu Manchu guy. <laughs> exactly. Um, for me, though, the the, the big problem uh, in terms of that, if I'm thinking about that, in terms of the story and, and enjoying the movie, John uh, Kitzmiller playing Coral, his sidekick in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, Coral is a very cool character when he's introduced. You know, he's uh, well. First, you know, you don't really know if he's a good guy or he's a bad guy, but he's you know very savvy. He's you know, a local Islander. So he knows the area. He uh, gets uh, a light bulb shattered and (laughs) slashed across his face and does not even react. You know, he's a cool guy. And then they, um, 
introduce this thing later in the film where Dr. No has a dragon tank that he's using to scare the locals. And he turns into this ridiculous stereotype of like a terrified black person. Yeah. Who, who believes that dragons exist in the world and has this ridiculous superstition about him. Uh, so for me, that really takes a lot of the coolness away from the, that character, definitely from the character and a little bit from the movie. Yeah, and as the capper, he's, he's the one who gets killed by the dragon and it's a uh, you know, dragon. Um, and it's, the last in the running theme in this film of violence against people of color, because you see the, uh, the photographer who uh, encounters bond and quarrel um, in, in the bar. And, you know, she gets threatened with uh, her arm being broken. And then um, Taro uh, who, Bond knows that anyone working for Dr. No is willing to kill themselves rather than disappoint him. So he knows they are under his thrall and victims of his sort of malevolence. Um, and he knows she's working for him, but he still, you know, sleeps with her because, you know, he, he can. So that's another uncomfortable uh, running theme in this film. In the Yeah, and pretty much in all of these films we're going to be talking about in the 60s, I think, have been accused of misogyny or even flat-out sexual assault on some of the female characters. Um, with Taro, I would say m what I'm more distracted by, by is why she would give uh, Bond her actual address when she expects him to get killed on the way there. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then she's surprised when he shows up, yeah. Right, so like, why not give him just some phony address to go to? Um, but, uh, it sets up, you know, this idea that Bond, you know, will seduce his way into information or seduce his way into an advantage. And in this, this case, what he's doing specifically is slipping out of her noose and punishing her somewhat, you know, by humiliating her after the fact. So that is a little bit uncomfortable, even though, you know, the kind of thought behind it is, well, she was going to kill him. She deserves that she's a bad guy. Right. <laughs> Um, if they're both sort of being duplicitous in, in this, you know, the kind of question is, well, why should he be? Yeah. Um, so again, this isn't a defense of it in any way, but, um, but then, yeah, it, it, I know it's entirely subjective, but it feels entirely different than when, you know, Bond shoots his would be assassin, you know, that's a Smith and Wesson and you've had your six. And that's like this incredible moment of like badass spycraft. Um, and I, I'm fine with that action, but against Tarot, it's just it's more icky. uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's sort of a reason why, and we'll get into this a little bit more as we talk. Uh, Connery for me, and this is not, you know, Connery's fault. This is how the character is written in these movies. This is why the Connery bond for me is not my favorite because mm -hmm. he's very sleazy. He's willing to do things like this. And he's willing to degrade his enemies, his female enemies specifically in this way. He's got no qualms about, you know, slapping women around. Uh, he's very rough and a bully in a lot of ways. And yeah. the justification of that is, well, you know, he's, again, he's trying to get where he needs to go. And, you know, he doesn't have time to you know, put on the kid gloves on, these, on all these situations. Um, but I think that definitely informs for me why I find the Connery bond, while I still love Connery and I think, you know, I love these movies, 
um, why he's never going to be my favorite because of that kind of queasiness that you're talking about. Yeah, uh, I would definitely agree. And I think Connery's Bond is the best spy, but the spy I would most want to hang out with, like, or have dinner with, go out for drinks with, is Roger Moore. Oh, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Let's see. I just want to mention again, uh, John Kitzmiller plays Quarrel. Um, I didn't realize uh, until recently when I was kind of looking him up, what an amazing uh, filmography he has. He was the first black actor to win um, Best Actor at Cannes for the movie Valley of Peace. Uh, He worked with Fellini. He basically... Uh, he had liber- helped liberate um, Italy during World War II and ended up falling in love with the country and basically just stayed there. And oh, was, wow. so he did mostly Italian films up until Dr. No and ended up passing away not long after, unfortunately. But um, it just makes that so much cooler. Why, why I wish Quirrell was, you know, not treated the way he is in the second half of his uh, his arc. But yeah, definitely. What can you do? Um, let's see. Uh, what else? That one liner you mentioned, uh, that's a Smith and Wesson, then you've had your six is fucking amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it totally makes you feel fine about him murdering this unarmed man because it's just too cool. You know, that's it's, just it's Bond's way of saying you've stepped to, to a world and you're in way over your head, and this is what happens. It, yeah, it's an incredible moment. I love it. And just from the beginning, from uh, when he reaches Kingston and he figures out that the chauffeur driving him is a plant, you know, a bad guy. Um, you realize at that moment that this guy, this, this business agent is someone who, if you go up against him, you are going to get fucked. Yeah. You know, you, you are just not going to come out on top. He's smarter than you are. He's can beat you physically. That's just the kind of guy that we're dealing with here. And there's a great directorial touch in that scene too, where, um, the chauffeur relaxes after, you know, because the, they're being followed. Bond says, pull over, and then they, the, the car passes. You see the chauffeur relax and then tense up when he feels the muzzle of Bond's gun on his back. I love that yeah. moment. It's just and, awesome. And you see how shocked Connery is when the chauffeur um, takes a cyanide capsule. And so you've, you've, see, you've been shown how incredibly competent, smart, and physically intimidating this spy is and then you see that guy get shocked at the fanaticism of dr no's henchman and then you you know you are in for uh you know a, a deadly game you know for the rest of the film and so there yeah that is sort of a pair of uh tone setters in that one scene yeah that's perfect that's the exact response to someone who can beat you mentally and physically as well what if i can just throw minions at you left and right you know guys who are willing to die for me but if i have that much influence like how could you even go up against that and again that's what gives such a great aura of menace to the first hour of this film where it's just like how do you even find this guy? where is this guy people don't even want to go near crab key they don't want to they want to investigate it and bond is the only one who even has the tenacity to go in there and really find out what's going on so definitely that, that adds to the coolness of this movie and one thing that uh i always found interesting about the book um is the characterization of honey rider and it's this one of the dozens of examples of this dichotomy Fleming had where he's like sympathetic to the plight of women in the mid 20th century and also a misogynist. Yes. Her name is 
honey writer, but also she's somebody who in the book is clearly the victim of physical abuse and seeing the evidence of that physical abuse, like makes bond physically disgusted, not at her, but at the fact that somebody would be willing to do this to, to a defenseless person. And so for Fleming to add that characterization in, I think adds an extra dynamic to both of those characters in the novel that I think the film loses. Uh, Um, yeah, I know what you mean. The more interesting in in Fleming as a person, as a figure of his generation. I think the funniest part of the book, uh, remembering it now, is when she's talking to James about like, well, I think after this I'm going to go to America. Once I save up money, I'm going to go to America and be a prostitute. And, yeah. <laughs> and Bond starts schooling her and like, well, you don't just get to keep that money. You got to get a pimp and then you got to get a, you got to pay off the cops. And Bond's basically like telling her all dropping all this street knowledge on her out of nowhere. And it's as a, if, as as insane Fleming conversation. As if Ian Fleming is a streetwise <laughs> human being in any way. It's like, oh, poor naive child. You need to get a pimp. If you're gonna hook, you gotta get a pimp. Uh, but <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it, it's again, it again speaks to some of these films, some of the iconography of these films that uh, just the presence of Ursula Andress in this movie and just the the swimsuit she's wearing distracts you from the fact that Honey is you know kind of this useless character who's just sort of there for most of the time and not one of the stronger female characters that we you know see a little bit later in the series. Yeah, uh, she does tell a story of meeting Sean Connery um, and being kind of unimpressed with him. Like she, she, she thought, oh, this is the guy that people are saying is so sexy and, and is going to lead this film. And then once cameras started rolling, she turned it, look at him and she was like, oh, that man. <laughs> uh, and so it's just an example of how Connery could sort of turn on that bond charisma and c- communicate that to camera. That would have been a moment to have witnessed for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I would never take away charisma from Connery, obviously. Certainly. He's, uh, he's definitely the man when it comes to, you know, turning on the bond charm. Um, yeah. Uh, in the book also, uh, it's a killer centipede rather than a uh, tarantula that they plan his bed. Uh, it's one of the more effective sequences in the book. And I actually kind of wish they could have found a way to use it in the movie. I'm glad they don't have him fighting a giant squid at the end of it though. <laughs> yeah. That, that, <laughs> that was a good change. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple years after 20,000 uh, leagues under the sea, uh, it would have been a little hack. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe it would have spiced up a little bit. I don't know. Um, so those are thoughts. Any other thoughts on Dr. No. Mr. Arminio, before we move on. Um, just that um, I love the goofy radiation suits. Like they, the hazmat think, suits, yeah. Yeah, when we're, we're talking about taking the mystery out of Dr. No, I think those suits really put the nail in the coffin on that. But I, I just love these, you know, 60 stuntmen having to, to fight in these bulky plastic things with flimsy helmets. <laughs> That is, is that is amusing. I will give you that. Um, and Doctor No's end is uh, is pretty horrible. Um, yeah. It is is pretty gruesome, as opposed to drowning in bat guano or bird guano, which he does in the book. Uh, let me ask you this: I got a, I got a trivia question here for you, John. Uh oh, and you don't have to answer it right away. You can think about it. 
Um, that's something I thought was interesting. Dr. No is one of only two Bond films that does not feature a helicopter. And my question to you is, can you name the other one? The other one? And we're talking the whole series here. Like I said, you can think about it while we're going into the next film and give me your answer toward the end of the episode, if you like. Um, okay. Wow. <laughs> but it's something I thought was interesting. Uh, we're going to dive into the next film here, which is from Russia with love. Uh, director Terrence Young returning to do their follow-up film. Uh, and I'm just going to say right off the bat that I love from Russia with love. I think it is, uh, if you had to talk about objectively what is the best Bond movie, I would vote for this one. That's the right answer. <laughs> Glad you agree. Um, and, and watching it this time, I kind of thought, you know, a huge thing about this, and it might just be, you know, me projecting it on there, but uh, with Dr. No, obviously, all these people that didn't know if this thing was going to take off, if this movie was going to be a success. And then, of course, it was. And I think that From Russia With Love feels fueled with confidence. I feel like they really just hit a home run with this one because they're already coming out as a seasoned hitter. You know, they all these people all made Dr. No. And then they did From Russia With Love and they just kind of went into it thinking, we know how to do that. We got this. You know, it has that feel to it. Yeah, it's it's the perfect balance of knowing what works without falling back on what works uh because you know the the locations are just a little more exotic the the action is bigger there's more fights um you get the intrigue of specter for the first time you get q for the first time i think you get for the first time a real character uh in a bond girl you get several real fascinating villains um and then there's of course that legendary uh fight in the train car um, lots of great supporting characters doing some interesting spy work. Yeah, th- this film just has it everywhere it counts. It's got Kronstein, for Christ's sake. Yeah. He's anticipated every possible variation of counter move. Who is Bond compared to Kronstein, I ask you? Uh, it's, a big, <laughs> it's a big point of contention that my friends and I like to discuss. It's our Chewie didn't get a medal sort of thing uh, among my, my Bond fan friends that they booted the wrong guy. It was not Kronstein's mistake. He should not have been the one to get blamed at all. You know, Red Grant was Kleb's man. He's the one who goofed up. Kronstein anticipated every possible variation of counter move. It's not his fault. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, Kleb is the uh, higher in ranking in Spectre's uh, order of importance. It's her responsibility. She should have gotten killed. But... I mean, speaking of Kronstein, that uh, opening set in the in the chess room oh. is so great because this is uh, Sid Kane uh, as production designer, not uh, Ken Adam, uh, because Ken Adam was working with Kubrick at this time. But strange love, yeah, yeah, that is like that's like, when I found out that was a set, I like my mind was was blown because it looks like some you know room built like adjacent to Versailles or something just outstanding and it's just such a great piece of atmosphere uh for him to you know get a message from this evil organization via a water glass while 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 winning at chess it's it's just a great little moment from you know this character that you've never seen before absolutely and seeing the giant chess pieces you know mirroring the uh the game on the table is such a cool design um 
the the fact that he could just win this apparently just win this game whenever he wanted to. Yeah, it's like he was just hanging out, waiting for the call from Spectre. He's just playing with this guy. He already anticipated every possible variation of counter move. Um, you know what? A funny thing. When I was a kid, uh, I had this on recorded on a videotape. So it was pan and scan. When Kronstein dies, I never realized it was uh, Walter Godel, the the hench playing the henchman behind him who boots him. I thought Rosa Klebb did, mm. because it was hard to tell from the way it was uh, uh, formatted. So for years, I thought Rosa Klebb kills Kronstein so she doesn't get killed. You know, when like she's back into the corner, Blofeld says someone's going to have to die. She brings out the knife in the boot, and she's the one who gets him. And Blofeld's kind of like, okay. I guess you're the one who survives. That made sense to me, especially because Rosa Klebb is always brought up as the knife boot lady. Yeah. You know, so I thought that's her, that's the knife boot moment where she boots Kronstein to save her own neck. Uh, and then later on she tries and, and, and gets killed. So when I found out that's not even her thing, <laughs> you know, she tries to use it once ineffectively and gets shot. Why is she known as the knife boot lady? It really blew my mind. I guess this is hard to communicate, but... I, it just really confused me. And that's when I really started getting very indignant at Kronstein being the one who gets blamed and killed by Spectre for the goof-up that is all Clem. You had to keep Cleb around because Fleming's book has this weird fascination with lesbians. <laughs> uh, and so the whole thing between her uh, shunning any touch by a man and then groping uh, Tatiana, that has to be kept in the book to satisfy Fleming. <laughs> I guess. God damn Fleming. Uh, no, I, I, I get it. I get it. strategically they got to keep her alive because the last resource they have is Tatiana and getting the lector away from Bond, you know, at the last minute. I get why they kept her alive. It's just not fair. Yeah. It's not lesbian or no, it's not fair. But uh, uh, lots of Lenya, the, the actress who plays her, you know, she had a, a fascinating life. You know, she was a performer in Germany, married to uh, Kurt Weil, uh, who was in, you know, the Rush, um, Russian, uh, German cabaret scene in the 30s. And, you know, they eventually escaped to uh, non-genocidal parts of Europe. And so I just, I just think that it's great that, you know, decades later she shows up in this uh, English s- spy thriller. Definitely. No, that definitely adds some coolness to the character, I think. Um, also, uh, Pedro um, Armanderas as Kareem Bay yeah. is an amazing presence in this film. Just, he's so awesome. Yeah, he's he's somebody <laughs> that, like, when people who aren't familiar with the series see this movie for the first time, they're always like, oh, that guy's so great. Well, why does he have to die? Where did he come from? Like, he's somebody who takes people by surprise at how sort of charismatic and fun he is to watch on screen and he's somebody who everyone in the production had nothing but kind words to say about him i think he john ford like vouched for him personally even though he was dying of cancer at, at this time that you know everybody sort of like was rooting for him and wanting him to be on this movie and i think it shows on screen yeah do you know the background of that yeah the the production had to move around scenes so that all his scenes could be shot in front no, I mean, do, you, of, do you know about the the conqueror the genghis khan movie oh oh i did not know he was in the conqueror no 
yeah, The Conqueror. This is Howard Hawk. Uh, sorry, Howard Hughes produced Genghis Khan movie that was shot in St. George, Utah, which is about a hundred miles downwind of where the government was performing above ground testing of nuclear we- uh, weapons. And eventually, almost half of the people involved with the making of The Conqueror would develop some form of cancer, and forty-six of them died of cancer, including John Wayne, Susan Hayward, uh, Dick Powell, who was the director of the film, Agnes Moorhead, and. Um, Pedro Amanderas was one of them. So, like, this is like a really horrible thing that, you know, happened. Uh, Obviously, in Hollywood, I mean, almost surely it was due to the poisoning from the fallout that all these people got sick. So, but yeah, like you said, they had to move all his scenes forward in this movie to to shoot them all. And then he basically left and, yeah, he killed himself a week later uh, rather than submit to the cancer. So, that's all obviously too bad to think about, but he really had an amazing final show in this. I mean, not only is he a cool character, but his chemistry with Connery is just awesome. And the way he yeah. says, how can a friend be in debt? I love that line. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been great to see him show up in other movies with, with Connery. Yeah. He's got to be one of the, if not the best, one of the best Bond sidekicks of all time. She's a lovely mouth, that Anita. It's just freaking awesome. <laughs> He's... He rolls as his mistress is begging him to come to bed. He rolls his eyes and says, "Back to the salt mines." <laughs> <laughs> so great, <laughs> and I love this idea too of uh, Karen Bay employing all of his family in his enterprise because those are the only people you could really trust are your own sons. So that's a another cool aspect of the character here in, in Istanbul, where the blood cold... is the best security in this business. Exactly, where this bed of, this bed of Cold War activity. Uh, that's kind of weirdly good nature. Like everyone has just sort of accepted that they're tagging, they're, they're tagging along, they're following each other. They're, but it's it's sort of you know a cold war, so it's nothing is happening until of course Bond shows up, and then things get heated up. Um, it, it is a, a, a it's it sounds like fun, the way <laughs> it's described to him that the Bulgars are, are t- tailing the the Turks and and the Gypsies are are helping and 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 Bond sounds, even says oh very friendly like it, it's like they're playing a costume drama but then of course you know uh, somebody attaches a limpet mind to somebody's office and boom the Cold War becomes hot. Well, it's like they're kids on a playground and then Red Grant comes along and he starts pushing people off and hurting people. Yeah. Like, what the hell, asshole? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. So can we talk about uh, Robert Shaw's Red Grant? Please. Let's talk about Robert Shaw's Red Grant. One of the great cinematic psychopaths because he he barely (laughs) makes... changes his facial expression but for some reason you're still able to read like this kind of cold calculated hatred in his mind um he's just pure sadist um he enjoys every second that he has bond at gunpoint because he's going to make this man hurt for causing him an inconvenience and he you get the impression that, you know, he likes sowing chaos, that he likes strangling people to death, beating them to death. And so it's such a contrast to the way Bond does things. So Bond can be a bit of a thug at some points, but he's not somebody who enjoys murdering people the way Grant does. Right. It's what separates the two of them. Absolutely. Um, he doesn't talk for an hour and 20 minutes into this movie. You know, he doesn't have a line until he meets Bond on the train. And so he's just this silent menace throughout the whole thing that shot 
where you see uh, Connery walking, uh, Connery's Bond walking on the platform and you see Red Grant following him in the train in the background is such a great shot. Such yeah. an amazing tracking shot. Uh, that introduction of him killing the fake Bond, you know, in the pre-title sequences just, just sets up like, you know, this Red Grant's the one you should be paying attention to in this movie right away, which I didn't realize. Terrence Young, that's him making fun of last year at Marion Bad. Did you know that? Yeah. What a, <laughs> there's all sorts of weird inside jokes in these Bond films. And it seems like, <laughs> why are you going to make last year at Marion Bad? what okay sure fine it's like terrence young you just had a huge hit with dr no you can make one of as many alan renee films as you want (laughs) and i i also love the fact that like like why does the dude you're killing need to have a james bond mask like would you not have killed him like that mask is purely for the audience it's such artifice but of course it still a good gag it's funny that yeah that you think what a coincidence that he just killed a guy dressed like james bond and then just randomly he's chosen as the one to go kill bond in istanbul ah okay (laughs) i mean i guess specter's got it out for bond though right after the events of dr no he says specifically that they want to get revenge on bond as part of the scheme uh of getting on top of getting elected they're also going to humiliate bond uh, and I, I actually do like the Spectre plan because they're playing off of both Bond's ego and English ego that they set a trap for the British Secret Service to get the Lecter that is so obviously a trap that appeals to Bond's ego that the Secret Service will spring it on purpose because they're so confident that they can avoid the trap. and. I like that thinking from a supervillain point of view, and because that's Cronsey's exact line, right? He says they'll they'll go for it just because they'll know it's a trap. Yeah, yeah. And so I I'm in line with Cronstein, and I would have liked to have more of his plots unfold before me, but of course, that was not to be. Nobody else can anticipate every possible variation yeah. of counter move. Um, <laughs> you know, he's great. Uh, yeah, it's funny that the, you know, this is like the really genuine Cold War thriller of the Bond films. Obviously, this plot moving forward, they'd have Spectre all the time, playing countries against each other, uh, getting, you know, bit counting on conf- confusion. But I think what this film does so well is set up that situation in Istanbul and the, the sides who are at war with each other. And you understand perfectly how an organization like Spectre could move in there and play them against each other because they never would see it coming. They always assume that it's the other side who's trying to do these things. There's so much mistrust and secrecy that Spectre uses that against them. And I think that, you know, it never, it was never as good as it was in this because things are so perfectly set up. Again, it's the Cronstein thing. He sets up the chess pieces, right? It's just so beautifully, just so beautifully executed in this film. Yeah, you know, in later movies, you would have kidnapping of entire spaceships, but in this film, all you need is Red Grant to live to leave a body of you know some driver in front of an embassy, and then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, World War Three might start. Exactly, and I know the lector's a bit of a MacGuffin, you know, but what can you do? I mean, some of the best Bond films use a MacGuffin. Yeah, and uh, I like that in this movie. You know, pretty soon you almost forget about the lector, and it becomes more about Tatiana Romanovna. Like, mm-hmm. 
how much does she care about Bond? How much does Bond care about her? How much is Bond willing to sacrifice to make sure she's safe? Um, and that becomes a much more interesting conflict in the film than just getting the lector. Yeah, I think that that's the thing that Spectre could never count on and why, you know, they could find flaws in Kronstein's plan, which it's human emotion, right? It's this woman falling in love with this man or it's Grant unable to uh, put aside his ego, you know, and wanting to, you know, best bond instead of just fucking shooting him on the train. It's just, it's just people are always going to screw up the best plans of uh, global terrorist organizations. <laughs> Yeah, not not everyone is satisfied with just um, sitting on in a chair and petting a cat. <laughs> exactly. Um, I should mention too. Yeah, great introduction of Blofeld uh, talking about the the fish and playing the fish. The, the, the one fish waits for the uh, the winner of the fight to get weak, and then he moves in for the strikes. Uh, and this is the best incarnation of Blofeld, I think, when he's just this guy petting a cat in this mm. amazing voice. Uh, this great mystery character is just, it's oh, it's awesome. It's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was a British actor, uh, Michael Collins doing the voice. Uh, and uh, oh. Anthony Dawson, right? Yeah. Sitting in uh, the guy who played Professor yes. Dent and yeah, Dr. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. Professor Dent. Yeah. Anthony Dawson. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so I can't, I can't say enough good things about From Russia with Love. I think it is as flawless as a Bond film comes. I think there's, you cannot fault it barely at all. Oh, the gypsy fight we got to mention is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it, again, a little culturally insensitive. A little. Uh, but, a little. <laughs> but it, it's such a well state. It's such well staged chaos because Bond is totally in over his head. He doesn't know what's going on. He, he knows that there is some tension in uh, the gypsy camp, um, but then this you know, troop of Bulgars come to enact revenge on something that Bond doesn't know actually happened. And so he's just trying to stay alive, and then all of a sudden, you know, Red Grant saves his life. Like, it just, it's an action scene that's thrilling and also adds intrigue for the upcoming scenes. It's just, uh, it's brilliantly executed and brilliantly placed in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. He needs him alive to, to execute the plan. So, uh, saves his life. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a multi multifaceted film. Absolutely. Even, awesome. Even like the, the sound design in the train fight is absolutely brilliant. Like the, the way that, you know, the, the sound effects change, uh, from going inside the cabins to, to the, the hallways and the way that the music drops out during the fight, that the way everything just sort of becomes almost like a vacuum once the window gets broken during the fight, it just creates a sudden sense of, of dread and peril for James Bond that you really don't see probably until um, Casino Royale in 2006. Like it's, you're really in fear of physical danger uh, for the characters in that, in that fight. Absolutely. I would argue that there is one movie we're going to talk about that used that same, uh, that has that same use of like physicality, but we'll get to that in Mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, Yeah. A plus, A plus, I think we're going to agree on this one, Uh, which moves on to one of the most well-known and popular Bond films, uh, where we have to 64, 1964's Goldfinger. Um, The first thing I'll say about this is that every change from the book is an improvement. (laughs) I agree, actually, yes. Um, 
Goldfinger is not one of the better books. If you eliminate the ones that have unfortunate racial caricatures or queasy misogyny, it's maybe the fourth best one. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. It's, um, it's also, but it is one in, that becomes a theme in uh, Fleming's writing is where his, yeah, he has some uncomfortable racial caricatures. He has some bad things to say about Americans in general and about Russians. Um, but he just has some absolute disdain and disgust for the idle rich and for industrialists. And it's delicious to read <laughs> this. The richest guy in England is going to go through some super villain hoops to become even more wealthy fuck this gold obsessed piece of shit like he, so to read that, that sort of language coming from you know bond is real nice uh so and and it is an interesting plot in that goldfinger just wants to sow economic chaos and then reap the benefits because yeah. he knows he doesn't need that gold in Fort Knox. He just needs to make everybody else feel that Goldfinger's gold is the gold to get. And so it's it's ridiculous. But if you look at real world consequences, like, like anytime there's a whisper of more conflict in Iran or in Kuwait, the price of oil, you know, shoots up 25%. So if the largest gold deposit in America suddenly becomes inaccessible, that would create economic chaos. And Goldfinger, the holder of the largest private gold reserve in perhaps the world, uh, would stand to benefit. Yes, I guess that as far as that goes, it's just a question of Fleming not thinking out the <laughs> believability, I guess, of the plan. And yeah, it, it, stepping it, in yeah, to in say, you know what, we could do the same thing. Uh, with a slightly different approach. Yeah, in the book, Goldfinger is just going to straight up take it, take the gold, and right. and yeah, and, and Fleming never stopped to think. Oh, that's that's very heavy, and there's a lot of it. Would take what seven seventy men, two weeks to load it into two hundred trucks. Um, but I think that that is my favorite scene in Goldfinger, the julep tartan for you scene, because. Bond is sitting here basically calling out the plot of the book saying this is ridiculous. Yeah. And then Goldfinger's response is, yeah, no kidding, idiot. I have a completely different plan that's brilliant. And Bond is stunned to silence when he realizes that the idea is to set off a bomb to irradiate the gold and uh, not only create the economic chaos, but make Goldfinger's personal stash of gold worth at least 10 times yeah. as much as it is currently. It's just a beautiful bit of screenwriting that scene uh, where you just want to watch it three or four times because you're like Bond, you know, you can't believe that like this plot is being kind of laid out before you like this uh, with a, uh, with just all these improved ideas on the original novel. <laughs> I agree. But I also do think that leads to sort of the weakness of the film is that Bond is kind of a, doof in this movie like he you know at the beginning of the film the iconic uh, painting of the gold of joe masterson that's that happens only because bond wants to 
piss off Goldfinger and because he feels like sleeping with somebody. It's totally his fault that she gets killed. He fails to protect her sister, Tilly Masterson. He gets captured a couple times and only sort of like... He gets captured by playing uh, chicken with his own mirror image, for fuck's sake. (laughs) And And he just sort of happens to stumble upon Goldfinger monologuing about his plan to a bunch of people he's going to kill anyway. Um, (laughs) And he, and Bond doesn't save the world. It's pussy galore who saves the world. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting flip on the sort of like supervillain protagonist structure because Bond spends the whole first half of the film humiliating Goldfinger. So you, you come to think of Goldfinger as this like ridiculous, you know, obese, like lark obsessed with gold, like not a threat at all, but then it turns out, Oh, he is a global threat. And so that's, that's a nice turn. But the downside of that is it makes Bond's failure, um, all the more pronounced and i think i think that's that's the second half of the film's uh to the second half of the film's detriment yeah he's not a witty spy in this one i mean his trick for getting out of the jail by confusing the guard at the window and that should not have worked at all like makes googly eyes at him and winks yeah like why would the guard go into that cell why would he do that um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I kind of tend to think of Goldfinger as the most overrated Bond film myself, uh, specifically for these things. But I think also Guy Hamilton's direction is just not as sexy as Terry Young's, you know? Mm. When you watch these films one after another, especially kind of appreciate Terry Young's ideas and how, you know, just how fresh they feel even now, you know, some of the ideas that he brings to it. I, I haven't, you know, gone back and watched this cl- these films closely enough, but it seems to me like Terry Young shoots low where you're really in the action, where you're really there with the characters. And I feel like Guy Hamilton would more likely shoot high. So you're almost kind of looking down as an audience member at these things happening. I don't know if that's exactly right, but it's something like that. It's something where you're less invested in what's going on and you feel more like an audience member and you don't have enough scenes like that moment with Coldfinger and, and Bond where he lays his plan out because it's, you know, you have more scenes like the Brandy dinner party, which, yeah. you know, it's just like, it just feels stuffier, I guess is what it is. So for me, like the biggest flaws of Goldfinger are Bond kind of sucks in it and it's stuffy, you know, it just does not compare to Dr. No and from Russia with love and, and Thunderball. It just feels a lot more like it's not as it's just not as propulsive a film i do like it's one of the the best m dressing down bond scenes and you get bond to say i'm aware of my shortcomings sir and so that's great uh because he deserves it in that moment um and you also have i think you know one of the most uh interesting and powerful uh, Bond girls and pussy galore that, you know, rest in peace on a black man who passed just a couple weeks ago. Um, but, but also, unfortunately you have the rape of uh, pussy galore. No, the near the end of the film. Uh, mm. And that scene 
like all it would take for that scene to play out so much differently is if she could say like like Bond goes to get up and she could say where do you think you're going and then then they kiss and yeah and maybe convert but actually but then, holding her down yeah. while she's struggling yeah it's not a good way to show that she's falling for him yeah it's not great uh, but like re- researching this movie i did find several accounts of honor blackman saying that she had a great time on this film that they treated her better than any other job she had uh that well who wouldn't want to roll around in the hay with sean connery it was great and so while it doesn't make me forgive this movie for that it does make me feel better that they act at least respected the actress and in the scene in making it uh you know, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna send film Twitter after this movie like they went after uh, Last Tango in Paris or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But I, I think too, if you like you and I know a lot about Bond and know that the um, Pussy Galore character, you know, is definitely a lesbian in the book, and that Bond literally converts her <laughs> to to get her yeah. on his side, not only get him on his side, but get him get her playing for the right team, you know, is that makes it all the more uncomfortable. It's not quite as explicit in the book, in the movie. I think she has one line saying she's not into men or something like that, but uh, yeah, like, or his charm won't work on me or something. Oh, yeah, something like that. There is also a great line where um, Goldfinger sends her to seduce Bond or at least dress up for Bond. And she says business before pleasure at that prospect. Hmm, So yeah, I wish I wish that pussy galore could have stayed around. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, yeah, um, yeah. So all those reasons too. Those reasons, the uh, um, the peekaboo scene in the plane I, that goes on for so long. I just I don't know why I hate that scene so much, but I do. Uh, they're just things that get gets me. I, I'm not saying this is a bad movie in any way. Obviously, it's obviously deserves all the love that comes to it. But I personally. Not one of my favorites, especially coming yeah. after From Russia with Love. Yeah, I agree. It, it has a great Bond theme. That oh, that Gordon. song is killer. Oh, Shirley Bassey, the Aston Martin, the Golden yeah. Girl. Again, the, you can just get drowned in the iconography of this film, you know, just any ideas going yeah. into this film. Uh, it's not until you look back at the execution and you're like, why does that grandma have the machine gun at the <laughs> compound? <laughs> why Why do the stupid soldiers at the end trust an officer carrying a golden pistol? <laughs> uh, little things like that. And uh, again, I'm, I feel like maybe I'm just giving it a hard time because comparatively, I think it has more dumb ideas. Maybe, not, maybe nothing as dumb as the dragon and Dr. No, but <laughs> some dumb ideas. I think the knockout gas is, is dumber. The knockout gas oh, yeah, that, that instantly puts to sleep thousands of soldiers. Uh, that's, a, that's a dumb idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, an improvement over the poisoning the water supply plot of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the execution of having everyone just fall down is uh, silly. Very silly. <laughs> as silly as, as uh, but I, I was thinking too, the, the scene that you mentioned where he has all the gangsters together and for no reason hatches his plot, even though he knows he's going to kill all of them in a minute. Um, I was thinking how else could Operation Grand Slam be presented in this movie so Bond can hear it. And I thought, well, it really, it really isn't a way to, you know, for him to find out about it. But that, um, 
But that map room is magnificent. That is an awesome piece of set design. Naturally. Every centimeter of that room kind of like is a secret door that becomes a 3D display. It's great. Yeah, again, it's kind of magic. Uh, yeah. back, he came back for this movie and uh, yeah, it's outstanding. And no, A plus for him uh, yeah. across the board. Uh, playing his golden harp. Anything else uh, on Goldfinger, Mr. Amdeo? Um, anything about odd job? We didn't mention odd yeah, job. We, um, another silent assassin, but not one as charismatic as Red Grant. Um, I I like the gimmick of of throwing the hat. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, I like the fight at the end with you know Bond chained to to the bomb and him you know desperately trying to not get his skull crushed by you know this Hulk of you know man mountain um and then getting electrocuted uh that, that's a great display uh so i would say odd job is you know top third henchman but not not nearly the best no ray grant for sure C- certainly uh we definitely got to mention too uh, while we before we got off ken adam the uh interior of fort knox it, the crew of course is not allowed access to the actual fort knox so that's 100 percent ken adam imagination yeah and it looks just outstanding. Yeah. No reason in real life why gold would just be piled 60 feet high. Uh, <laughs> but it looks great. It does. It looks amazing. Uh, but I think it gives a uh, little bit too uh, of um, believability to, you know, the, the, the points that, you know, you can't get this gold out, Yeah, you know, in any quick way. You know, it's all behind bars. Uh, just just um, it looks completely impenetrable. I think is what's so cool about that. Yeah. So a lot, so good stuff to love, stuff to love about Goldfinger. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and what about Thunderball? I know that this is one that you've had some things to say about. I want to hear them. Um, Thunderball is an example of how the Bond movies sort of shift in my opinion of them. Um, I think when I was like in college and first going through and making sure I was watching every Bond movie, I liked it a lot. And then it soon became like my least favorite Bond movie for maybe 10 years or so. Um, But then, I don't know, I recently watched it with my uh, best friend, Barbara, who is sort of my Bond buddy. Uh, She's as obsessed with it as I am. And I don't know, just like watching it with somebody else and sort of relaxing and being able to comment on it and sort of not fully pay attention to what was going on. uh, It was really, really enjoyable. Um, So I I think if you're in the right frame of mind, Thunderball is a blast because if you're not sitting there stuck watching the underwater fights that are very long, um, Maybe you can, you know, grab a bite to eat while everybody's swimming very slowly. Uh, it's it's great. Um, other times, it's it really loses its momentum. Um, we're supposed to be like searching for a stolen nuclear device, and Bond is like hanging out in this on this guy's boat. Like, uh, but it, I think it, it really depends on what mood I'm in, honestly. Yeah, I think you hit. I think you hit the nail on the head, and it's interesting because this one always gets grouped. The first four Connery films, basically, I think, are considered the golden age of Bond. Um, that are usually, you know, 
completely invulnerable to criticism for a lot of Bond fans, which I always find interesting because I think I don't feel that way. And that's sort of the reason too, why I wanted to talk to you about these films one on one by one, because I don't, I wouldn't group Thunderball in immediately with these. And I think that your criticisms are valid. I think the main problem with the film, uh, and again, just to kind of get that out of the way is it's overlong and overstuffed too many meetings, too much underwater action, too many characters, too many subplots, too much con chowder. You know, you can tell it was all written by three different dudes. Uh, the need to streamline this, the script. We don't need to have two trips in the helicopter to go find the plane. You know, we don't need an extended episode of Bond trapped in a cave for no reason. The scene at uh, the Shrublands is too long. The scene with the Junkanoo is too long. Uh, whereas Dr. No is perhaps too minimalistic in its ambitions, like I was complaining about earlier. I think Thunderball is too overblown. I hate to say it, it's almost too much of a good thing. You know, it's the first one that was filmed in widescreen and they really fill that screen up. Uh, and in a way, the excess of this movie may be a little responsible for steering the series off course a little bit for the next few years. So that's sort of my basic thought on it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, there are some real cool gadgets, like the the rebreather is great, uh, the jetpack. But I think an example of how the movie's going to go off course is like the Austin Martin has water jets, and it it sprays enough water to fill like a fire engine out of that little sports car. The, yeah, uh, pre quite sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems uh, totally unnecessary and totally illogical, and you know, you're you're breaking reality for a gag uh, uh, almost immediately upon you know the movie's start, mm. and it it just doesn't bode well for the rest of the film. You're right. I, yeah, I think it, it's the kind of thing where, unlike from Russia with Love, where they take time establishing each player in this film. You know, where we we're introduced to Red Grant, we meet Spectre, we meet Tatiana before we even get to bond really, you know, we just, we have just a clear knowledge of who all these guys running around are in Thunderball. It's like bonds at the health clinic. There's this one guy who's involved with spectra. There's a, a, an air force man who's killed and then he's got a doppelganger. And uh, it's just hard to like keep track of all these people just sort of right away because we're like, who yeah. are these guys running around and it doesn't get better. Once they get to Nassau, there's, uh, a sidekick who I don't even know his name. You know, it's like he's got Felix, he's got Paula, and there's another dude, and I don't even know who he is. He just kind of shows up here and there. Uh, it's, it's everything just feels like there's just one too many thing added to it. There's just one one factor too many. <laughs> and especially at the beginning, uh, I mean, yeah, Earl Cameron is Pinder. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at the beginning you have the fight with is that Earl Campbell? Yes. The football player? Yes. Wow. I had no idea. You see? I'm <laughs> too distracted yeah. by this film <laughs> to even notice Hall of Famer Earl Campbell popping up in this. But, uh, you know, especially because, like, that opening fight with Bob Simmons in a dress is so fantastic and so full of energy because it's Sean Connery's stunt double. So you get to go full out like action scene with such high energy and such like crazy inventiveness with this deadly assassin in a, you know, a widow's dress. Um, and it's, and 
it ends with this great button of Bond just like dumping flowers on him in this yeah. bright act of disdain. And that's probably the most energetic the movie gets because, you know, after all the slowness of the underwater stuff, you, you get that really weird, totally undercranked fight on board Largo's yacht, the Disco Volante, which is admittedly the best name for a ship ever. The Disco Volante is cool as hell. Yeah, it is. Give it that, for that sure. is a, a great uh, Ken Adam creation again. Mm. Um, but we do get at least um, the abused Domino skewering uh, Largo with a spear gun. That was that's a great moment, a great way to end the film. But I think there's just so much energy lacking in the movie that it keeps it from being, you know, the unimpeachable Connery era of Bond. Yeah, considering I've seen it as much as I've seen any of the Bond films. Just the fact that every time I sit down to watch it, I can't remember what happens. You know, I can't remember. I, I always, I always get thrown off by Paula getting kidnapped. That whole subplot happening. I mean, there's just things in this movie that just don't seem important. <laughs> you know, it's just it needs to be more streamlined. It's too long. It's like over two hours long, um, and just gets off course. Uh, but but let me talk about some things I like about the film because again I don't want to be negative. Uh, Fiona Volpe, obviously played by the great Luciana Paluzzi, is oh oh super John cool. yeah. John I'm sorry um it's not Earl Campbell it's Earl Cameron Earl Cameron okay I'm sorry no 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 problem I, that was that's why I was so surprised <laughs> I didn't know Earl Campbell did movies. Uh, Fiona Volpe played by the great Luciana Paluzzi. Uh, it's just phenomenal. She's yeah. just a great femme fatale type character to drop in there. Um, she almost seems like she's playing her own game, uh, even though she is, you know, obviously a proud card carrying member of Spectre, ring wearing member of Spectre, I should say. Um, she just seems like she's the bond of the bad guys. You know, she's just doing her own thing. And she is, she gives the film a lot of life that it, that it needs. I mean, when you consider that the other henchman is Vargas, Vargas, who does not do anything, does not drink, does not smoke, does not make love. What do you do, Vargas? You know, yeah, Vargas yeah, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Vargas' best moment is when he's made fun of by Largo. I know. Like he's humiliated in front of his boss, by his boss. Um, so he sucks, but um, even a reliable henchwoman in the form of Fiona Volpe, um, it's just so hands-on in this film, just kind of taking the initiative and sort of picking up the slack. So every scene with her, I think, is terrific. Yeah. James Bond, all he has to do is make love to a woman, and she hears heavenly choirs singing, well, not this one. <laughs> ah, absolutely. She might, be the, uh, she might be the strongest female character in a Bond film up to this point, at least the equal of Pussy Galore, I would say. Yeah, she's, definitely. She's very cool. And I do like the Domino subplot, although it just takes a while for her to kind of come out of her shell and you kind of feel like why is she this kept woman to this creep with the eye patch you know like why would she even trust him uh yeah. and let herself get into the situation in the first place but you're right at least it sets up that great moment at the end where she which saves bond's life basically saves bond's life. yeah yeah that's one thing that you um don't think about too in the connery films is that he always gets an assist in in taking off the uh getting rid of the bad guys you know after yeah, Doctor After Doctor No, when he you know manages to take him out by himself, 
You know, he can't kill Blofeld. He um, needs an assist from Domino in this film. And uh, yeah, he's uh, not quite as effective an agent, I think, as Roger Moore, who I think kills every villain in all of his movies. Yeah. It, you, and you only live twice. He needs a literal army. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. He has to get a whole, exactly. It's, um, old needs a lot of help. Um, and you're right. The Bob Simmons fight at the beginning is terrific. It's a great establishment of the, um, the pre-credit sequence that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. It's just like a fun little short episode that we get. Goldfinger started that, of course, but I think that the one in Goldfinger is not nearly as good as this one. Yeah, yeah, Goldfinger has a great gag with the the wetsuit and the um, the white tux underneath it, which is iconic. But it's not nearly as fun as as that fight. Well, it's got that cheesy line too: "Shocking, positively shocking." That's yeah. just unforgivable. Come on, guys. Um, yes, yeah, uh, some nice. I get you know with Terrence Young back. There's some nice directorial flares in this movie. I really like the shot from under the water when the guy is eaten and you see the red the water turning red as it looks up at Largo and the other guys is a nice sort of intimidating touch to that scene. Um, let me ask you this though. This is something I noticed for the first time. Is it implied that Bond and Domino have sex underwater? Yes. And that's weird. I hope we didn't frighten the fish. Yeah. What, how does how does that work? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's yeah. a Fleming thing. This seems like a Fleming thing. I have not read the novel of Thunderball. No, I mean, um, in his personal life. <laughs> oh, well, he, he did love being by the water. So I, I, I would have to think that any sort of friction related activity in salt water would be awful. But Bond's a better man than I. So who knows? <laughs> What are your thoughts on Largo as a villain? Um, he's fine. <laughs> um, he's he, he his plan's not great. Um, it, it's interesting to go after these stolen nuclear missiles, but he's not very intimidating. Um, it's all under the guise of Spectre anyway. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think the women in his life are the most interesting part about the character and his boat. Yes. I think the boat would be the most interesting thing in anybody's life if they were on the Disco Volante. Um, and it has its uh, little star drive section that detaches at the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like the freaking Enterprise. It's, it's freaking rad. Yeah, separated the saucer section. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's another thing about this uh, movie being overlong is that it stays with them. It stays with the star drive section in the back as they're having a gunfight for like two minutes or three minutes. It's like, what, but Bond and all the villains are on the, the saucer section. Let's go and catch up with them. Why are we staying here? Why are we lingering here? Uh, so but, but there's like really interesting moments of subtlety, like in, um, in Domino's stateroom when she's about to be tortured, like everything is like a warped mirror mm. in there. So you see this kind of like monstrous ogre of Largo, like reflected in the ceiling and in, and in the walls and you see like the literal nightmare that Domino is living in. And it's such like an effective moment of, of set design that I just wish more, you know, moments of subtlety could have been sprinkled throughout the film. And then maybe you know, it would have been a more efficiently told film. Yeah. Some more Ken Adam wizardry there and the, yeah. uh, the specter and MI six, they both have their 
uh, little round tables that kind of mirror each other. I think it's another great Ken Adam uh, addition yeah. to the film. Uh, and, and again, you know, there's so there is fun stuff in this film. Um, and the underwater stuff, it's there's too much of it, like everything. Uh, but you definitely have to appreciate, you know, the effort that went into it, obviously, and just getting all the shots that they needed, you know, under underwater and saying, okay, now this character needs to be here. This character needs to go there. Uh, obviously, there's it's commendable, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the underwater stuff, the underwater director was uh, Rico Browning, who was the gill man in uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. No so kidding. That, yeah, there's some great uh, behind-the-scenes personnel on this film, and not going to knock any of them. Uh, yeah, but yeah, like you said, there's just too much of it. There is. I think maybe it's just it was too much of a patting on the back, maybe. Yeah. Once they realized they could do it, they did way too much of it. And they probably didn't want to cut any of it. <laughs> well, that that might get, be the reason. We do get Connery in some very, very short pink swim trunks still looking masculine as hell. And he's probably the only person in the world who could do that. So there's that for this film. Connery's not one of the problems with Thunderball. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, he's definitely brings his game uh, as a game. I like too that there's a logical reason they don't kill Bond in this one. That, you know, by killing him, they would alert MI6 to the fact that something's going on in Nassau, that he was on the yeah. right track. And, you know, it doesn't get explained very often when people complain about it. Why did they just kill him? So, uh, yeah, and this one is a yeah, really good reason for it. Yeah, Largo invites Bond to his house as a way of showing off the fact that the nuclear bomb is not at his house mm-hmm. because it's being kept underwater. So that's part of Largo's gambit. And so that is part of the plan that I do like. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely cool stuff. I think it's just the reason I could never fully embrace this film is that there's just so much. They, they may be just had too big a sandwich with this one and they had to eat the whole thing. I don't know yeah. what it is, but uh, eyes too big for the stomach for sure. Um, any other thoughts on Thunderball? There's another uh, semi-queasy, could-be-rape scene that people like to talk about with uh, Molly Peters' character at the health club, whether Bond is blackmailing her yeah. sexual favors. Yeah, that uh, yeah, that health club stuff. Um, and there is a weird moment of signage in, in uh, that film when Bond walks out of uh, the that encounter there's a sign that says irrigation above him it's like is that a joke yeah <laughs> and there's several um physical therapy apparatuses that have kill settings at that <laughs> hospital so yeah i i don't know what's going on over there <laughs> the whole place should be shut down for sure yeah yeah <laughs> um i want to talk just a minute about kevin mcclory um, I feel like if we end yeah. up talking about Never Say Never Again at some point, we should talk more about it. But I feel like what's interesting about uh, the whole lawsuit, which just to give a quick background to everyone, uh, Thunderball was originally conceived as a TV movie uh, written by Fleming and two of the guys. One of them was this guy, Kevin McClory. Um, and Fleming ended up abandoning it, but then recycling and cannibalizing it for the novel Thunderball. And once Kevin McClory figured that out and realized that Fleming was basically plagiarizing his work, took him to court and he wasn't wrong. I don't think, I think, you know, Fleming was definitely trying to get away with something which he shouldn't have. I don't think initially 
McClory was wrong to take him to court, but the judgments, there are two, well, there's a judgment and then there's a contract situation that really confuses me. The ruling of the court was that uh, on top of getting paid, getting a settlement, uh, McClory and the other guy were going to be credited on all further editions of the book, which makes sense uh, as having come up with the original story, but they also gave him film rights to the story of Thunderball and to the character of Blofeld, which would have, you know, ramifications obviously throughout the rest of the adapting of these books. So it's like, I'm with it with, with as far as, you know, giving him credit, giving him money, but then giving him the film rights just seems like, well, he should be involved with it, but not just the only one who they have to deal with, you know? Yeah, it, Always it's, confused it's such me. a convoluted thing. It's first because then he made a deal with Saltzman and Broccoli to be the sole producer on Thunderball, and when the, and then they would be executive producers, mm-hmm. so that he would not create a, a competing serious Bond franchise, in which he wanted to cast Richard Burton as Bond. Um, which is an odd choice because this is a, a year before uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and that is not an actor you could see as playing James Bond. Richard Burton is a, a legend, no question, but James Bond at that point of his career, he is not. And so you, Kevin McClory was there first uh, in the realization that Bond could be a big screen character but he just did not have the experience or the know-how to actually make it happen yeah and he's clearly got skeezy ideas moving forward like purely making money is all he has in mind not Mm -hmm. like taking his original beloved story and like doing it right or anything like that there's no artistic integrity involved here uh but then when he makes the contract to allow uh, eon to make thunderball the thing about the contract that always confuses me is they say, okay, but you have to agree not to try to make Thunderball for 10 years. What? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you can't make a deal where he doesn't make Thunderball in perpetuity. <laughs> you know? This is the one and done project of Thunderball and it, he can't come back later and use the story for a different movie. Um, so contracts and, and, and uh, legal settlements back then, Arby Island to me is what I'm trying to get at there. <laughs> yeah, especially because like Fleming sold the TV rights to CBS for Casino Royale in like in the 50s yes. while trying to sell the film rights to the Bond books, you know, which uh, is would be un- unimaginable uh now. So yeah, the the, the legal wrangling behind the bond franchise is uh you know pretty complex complicated yeah so thanks for thanks for indulging me in that aside it's just something no that always problem. very perplexing um but speaking of perplexing let's move into 1967 and talk about a little movie called casino Ro- called casino royale oh my god uh yes that's pretty much that sums it up um, Danny Perry actually said that it would probably be best to view this film cut down for television with lots of commercials so that you don't expect it to make any sense, which is funny because that's the first way I watched it years and years ago. And I did attribute many of its failings to the format that I was watching it like at midnight 
you know, cut up into commercials. And I just thought this is just a, uh, this movie would make more sense if I was watching it, you know, straight. And having just watched it for the first time since then, I can say that is not the case at all. No, no, it's, it's a, it's the most expensive pile of garbage I've ever seen. Like it's, uh, I do have some budget statistics here. Uh, Thunderball w- was a, a big cost overrun fiasco, and it cost eleven million dollars. You only live twice cost nine point five million dollars. The Casino Royale cost twelve million dollars, and a lot of that is on screen because there are some magnificent like dance sequences. There are some, some magnificent sets. It has Orson Welles and Peter Sellers and and Woody Allen and Deborah Kerr and John Huston and a panoply like, like Ben Hecht and is a, was a writer on it. There's music by Burke Backrack, but it's such a mess that nothing makes sense. To say the least, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a movie directed by a half a dozen different people uh, who apparently never met each other or got together and decided how they were going yeah. to do this movie because it literally is several different things happening John, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, you know, David Niven has a plot where he's with a bunch of sexed up Scottish women. Peter Sellers and Ursula Andress are somewhat following the plot of the novel Casino Royale, meeting uh, Orson Welles, playing Le Chief for a game of Baccarat. And uh, Mata Hari is going to a spy school slash brothel where yeah, you, you find out that I mean, I had a child with Mata Hari and that's Mata Bond. And when Mata Bond meets David Niven, her father, they flirt for a couple of minutes and it's weird. And then the, this is like an hour after David Niven has taken a bath with a girl who tells him she is 17 years old. It, it's... <laughs> and, and, and that's just the stuff that makes sense. Yeah. That's just the stuff you can actually discern from this film. And <laughs> more the, more the, often, it's stuff that just, you're like, what? who are these characters and why do I care and what is going on? <laughs> at, the, at the end, a bunch of bagpipers, for no reason, marches through the scene one of them is Peter O'Toole, who Peter says... Peter O'Toole, what the fuck? Excuse me, are you Richard Burton? He says to Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers says, no, I'm Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole says, then you're the finest man that ever breathed, and then walks off. What is this movie? <laughs> John Paul Belmondo shows up at the end of this movie for no reason. He's just running around in the chaos. There's no reason for the Francis at that time, biggest star to just enter this movie and leave it for. (sighs) Unless we think, well, clearly there were some, you know, jokey, there's, there's a, there were some jokey things in this movie that to appreciate, I'm just going to give an example of one of the jokes in this film a dead man's toupee is referred to as a heirloom. Oh dear my God. God. Dear God. Um, yeah. Uh, Peter Sellers refused to be in the same room as Orson Welles making this movie and reportedly two things. He wanted to play Bond straight. 
So he would reportedly sabotage scenes that were meant to be funny by playing them completely straight. Like he was actually playing James Bond. And then he apparently left the production before they shot all of his footage, which is kind of ironic since that is something they would do with Peter Sellers after he really did die in 1980. Uh, And then they compiled the trail of the pink Panther using deleted scenes from the previous pink Panther movies. That's what this feels like. It feels like Peter Sellers actually died. And this is how they cobbled this movie together. He was supposed to be the star throughout the movie. And then they just kind of used whatever scenes they shot and threw in what the fuck ever else around it. That's the level of incomprehensibility of this. I mean, actual cue scenes in Bond movies are funnier than their equivalent in this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the problem with a movie like this is because, especially by this point, there was a definite air of camp in the Bond films. But like, winking, you know, stiff upper lip British camp. And so to make that goofy... It's like your parody and they might be giant song or something like it, it's like, no, you, you're, this is the wrong angle you're, you're taking with this material. And uh, John Houston has a Scottish accent in this movie. Ugh. Oh, it's, it's rough and it's long. It's over. It's two so hours long. I thought like, at least this movie was going to be short. It is fucking long. Um, but for some reason, the marketing got the full Bond treatment. It got a Robert McGinnis poster that is gorgeous. Yes. I consider it one of the best Bond posters because that image is so amazing. They got um, uh, Giorgio Olivetti to do character posters of Woody Allen and Ursula Andress in this film. It got like a full, beautiful marketing setup, uh, which, you know, I guess I should have expected considering the budget and everything that they threw into this movie but why why give this movie anything at all (laughs) it's mind-boggling i i do actually like the conceit of james bond changing the name of every mi6 agent to double seven james bond to confuse the enemy and then having different james bonds going around the world and and being spies and that's interesting, especially if you're trying to do a, a spoof or a send-up of, of the different sort of like iconographic elements of the Bond films. But uh, there's nothing interesting beyond that at all. Well, that's something we can get out of talking about this goddamn movie. Um, one fan theory that you probably heard before is that the different actors playing James Bond are actually meant to be different characters. That James Bond yeah. is just a name or a title passed from one agent to another what are your thoughts on that um it's you can think that that's fine i think that's actually the wonderful thing about the james bond films is that everybody can have their favorite everybody can have their thoughts on it and if if somebody's favorite bond film is is thunderball or die another day cool because there's 24 other Bond movies for me to enjoy. And if you think they're all the same character, that's fine. If you think that they are all, you know, different agents who have, you know, encountered uh, or who have been embodied in, in different time frames, that's fine too. I've even heard the theory that um, Bond's life starts with 2006's Casino Royale, then goes to Quantum of Solace, then every other Bond movie happens, then Skyfall. 
Okay. And if that's what you think, <laughs> cool. <laughs> but I think it's just supposed to be one character because I think that the idea of like canon and continuity just was not in anybody's mind in, you know, 1969 or 1967. I think you're right. And I think that that's going to be a big thing too, talking about this next movie uh, and my thoughts on actually the next few films that we're going to be talking about. Um, but I agree too, that I really like, that's one thing I really like about Bond fandom is that it's very good natured. Yes. I feel like, you know, there are not a lot of things where it's like, what you like die another day. You're an idiot. I feel like it's, you know, people appreciate other people's theories, other people's uh, opinions. It's one of those franchises that really doesn't feel like, Star Wars, for example, you know, where uh, it's not okay to like that Star Wars movie. It means you're not really a Star Wars fan. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing I definitely appreciate. Yeah. So, yeah, so like, like if um, you know, somebody from my dad's generation or or or, or a Gen Xer will talk to like a millennial, you know, we people from my age group have a real attachment to Goldeneye because of the video game. Um, and that is also was my first Bond movie in theater. So of course I'm going to love that film. Uh, and yeah. So, but, but nobody's going to say, well, pff, you're dumb for liking it because of a video game. It's like, Oh, cool. You, that's, that was your in to this great world. Yeah, of course. And, it, and what a huge cultural gap, the Ian Fleming books and, you know, Super Nintendo Gold and I have between them. You know? Yeah, exactly. Could not be any different. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. All right, let's uh, let's move on here, John. To you only live twice, 1967, and we are rounding out Connery's first stretches Bond with the film that introduced the word the world to the word sexiful. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to instead think of this movie as uh, the film that introduced the idea of the ninja to Western audiences. Um, it's not the first ninja movie, I know that, and it's not the first Western film to introduce martial arts, but it, I think it is the origin of the popularization of ninja uh, into Western movies. And that's pretty cool. I think it definitely must have had an impact on Japan becoming part of American pop culture again. You know, yeah. uh, even though the Japanese film industry itself was thriving, even though Kurosawa movies were being seen by American audiences, I think it probably took uh, a movie like this, even with its uh, unfortunate bathing scene, to get American audiences to kind of appreciate Japanese culture in a, in a new way. And if that's the case, and I, I really hope it is, and that's a very positive thing to say about this movie. Yeah, uh, and it's screenplay by Roald Dahl, who is probably responsible for some of the uh, culturally ins insensitive material in the film. Um, and and uh, uh, first-time director Louis Gilbert. We should say at least they have Asian actors playing Asian characters. Yes, that's, a, that's a big God. leap. That's a big leap from Doctor No, at least. Yeah. Um, but cinematography by Freddie Young who did Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Ryan's Daughter. Uh, this is, so one of the most legendary capturers of cinema in history is the guy who photographed this film. And there are some drop-dead gorgeous sequences in this movie. Um, even when like Bond is entering the sumo wrestler locker room and you just see like these this layering of 
of sumo wrestlers getting ready, like going back and back and back and back and back. And everybody's like perfectly framed and fully in focus. There's just so many gorgeous shots in, in this film. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting Freddie Young was a real coup. Um, the previous Bond films looked really good, but this one I think looks especially great because of that. Um, I totally agree with that. Uh, the great fight with uh, High Chief Peter Malvea of the NOA wrestling family from Hawaii. The Rock's grandfather is, uh, is a scene that I love a lot. Yeah, goth thrown around furniture <laughs> in one of the most beautiful offices ever put on screen. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's it's neat. Um, as far as you know, the twice, it's funny that I've kind of spent a lot of time pointing out dumb ideas in the previous movies that I can't get on board with. I think that you only live twice is a movie that has scene after scene of dumb ideas, but I am willing to cut it more slack for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's because it's just so action packed that it just has a place to go. Every single scene is about getting from one place to another. And the absolute worst scenes are when they're just kind of sitting down like the bathhouse scene. Um, But for most of the part, there's a, there's a real compelling element to this film where they, there's a time, there's ticking time clock, obviously element, but there's just the characters need to be somewhere at every, at every time. So it leads naturally from one action scene to another. And even though those action scenes are like picking up a car and dropping into the ocean and other bizarre, strange decisions, um it makes for a fun movie and then of course that just leads naturally to the epic ninja school and the giant battle in the volcano base at the end and it's impossible not to enjoy this movie yeah and i i love things like the sword master in the ninja school who's doing like uh samurai movements with the katana he shows up again uh in the final battle because he's just so great and so this is a movie that does pay attention to things that works and like goes for them uh, and I, I love little Nelly like a, yeah. a, a helicopter out of a box with more armament than three times the weight of the vehicle that is attached to it so it, it's a nice <laughs> law of physics defying um, mode of transportation and it's a lot of fun uh, and I think um, somebody suggested to Harry Saltzman uh, that there should be a helicopter chase in this film. And his response was, yes, five helicopters. And that was just <laughs> sort of the, that's the mindset for this movie. Five times more than what you need. Yeah, it's funny because it's as, it's as, excess, it's as excess heavy as Thunderball in every respect. But I think it just, it doesn't waste time. <laughs> yeah. you know, it moves one scene, from one scene to another. So there's no kind of just milling about throughout the whole thing. Um, biggest flaw for this movie, other than the, you know, uh, unfortunate stuff we've mentioned, um, Connery clearly is not as into playing Bond in this movie as he was. It's interesting that this is the only Bond movie where he does not drive a car. Did you notice that? Yeah, he gets driven around by people. He gets dropped into the sea, right? Picked up and put into the mini sub after faking his death. Driven around Tokyo by Aki, uh, hides in the back of the getaway car, goes down a slide, wee, takes over the flying duties of the single engine plane after uh, Brant bails out, pilots little Nelly, 
is transported by a monorail car and the volcano base tries to sneak onto the spacecraft but gets caught and what's he doing anyway trying to get in that spacecraft what's his plan there um <laughs> and then uh, the inflated light boat at the end where the um submarine cop blocks him before he can have his honeymoon because he's kazuki but he never drives a car uh which i think is just a representation of connery's attitude in this movie like he's not willing to like step up and really be the bond that he was in the first four films yeah he was really checked out by this point i think he was real he was just real pissed at uh cubby and uh harry saltzman for not including him in as a partner in the franchise because you know he was really carrying a lot of that on his back uh i he he was made a rich man for this but he's also somebody who valued his privacy uh during the filming of this movie he famously was followed into bathrooms you know handed constantly by the press just that's just something he hated um during the first three bond movies they're just story after story of connery being like a great guy really professional actors stunt people crewmen they all loved him but i think this is when he started to gain the reputation of being kind of grumpy and extremely private. And so I just think, yeah, he was just uh, unfortunately checked out by this He's point. He's a little checked out. It's true. So that kind of works against the movie. But again, I feel like this movie doesn't have time to even worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like the fact that he is getting whizzed around by all sorts of people, there's no sleuth in this movie. This movie has no time for it. You know, it's just kind of going full throttle towards that final battle. Um, and you get the you get the sense that it flies right out the window in like practically every scene and I'm fine with it you know it's like what's that what's that uh, picture of a boat got to do with anything don't worry we have to go to this place next okay great and that just kind of defines this film for me so while I couldn't speak to the overall quality of it I think it just has the right attitude weirdly it's directed by Lewis Gilbert uh, for the free, doing his first film. So it really doesn't care about being ridiculous. It doesn't care about a grumpy leading man. It just doesn't have time for any of that stuff. And even stuff like uh, Charles Gray's Henderson, uh, that, that's a great, like, weird little scene because you meet him and he almost immediately dies. But it's this great set that's a combination of like English upper class and traditional Japanese design that's again a Kid Adam creation and so it's visually interesting even though it's just a conversation with some guy and his death is great because it's so unexpected you yeah. think he's going to be like an important Karimbe like ally in the film and so his death is actually shocking yeah exactly and that's a perfect example i think of this film being like don't worry we're not going to spend too much time with these guys just sitting around talking bond's gonna to have to immediately deal with this guy getting knived in the back and it's going to take him to another place you know i think that that's a perfect example of that kind of thing speaking of death scenes i i love aki in this movie i think she's a cool character um and i'm actually sad to see her go in, in favor of kissy suzuki who kind of sucks yeah. but her death is so cool the, the ninja uh, string with the poison going into it. Yeah. That's a cool scene. Yeah. That, that's actually like a, a really interesting elaborate way to kill somebody. Cause it's, it's, you, you can track that poison going from the assassin down to the mouth of, of its victim. And it's, it, there's a lot of tension in, in those moments. 
Exactly. It's a really well-constructed scene. It's also impressive that Spectre just manages to get all these guys sneaking into the ninja school. Uh, you would think that the hardest place in the world to break into would be this ninja school, uh, but they just keep getting guys in there somehow. Makes you wonder why they even bothered uh, uh, japanese Bond. <laughs> it, yeah, that, that The most unfortunate aspect of this film, other than, you know, Bond looking at women he thinks he's going to marry with undisguised disgust because, ugh, they appear to be over 40. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's totally pointless because his quote-unquote Japanese makeup is just inexplicably gone by the last act of the film. And that was done on purpose by the filmmakers, but it makes you wonder, like, why did you do it in the first place then? Yeah. Uh, what was the point? It's so bad, too, the makeup that I can't even tell when it, when he loses it because it's just barely... Yeah. It seems like his Japanese guys is mostly him hunching over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as Japanese oh, people oh, yeah. do, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Um, I do like when they are when they are doing the initial operation on them though, just because uh, Aki shouting out the commands in, Jap- in J- Japanese and having someone repeat them to her. It's just like what Spectre is doing at the end of the movie when they're barking orders in the volcano base, and then someone repeats them. It's nice to see that these organizations have all these similar sort of setups. But that's literally the only cool thing about <laughs> that that. Uh, subplot of the movie uh one movie does have tiger tanaka who is cool as hell tiger's very cool yeah Yeah, he's a cool sidekick um maybe doesn't speak for all men when it comes to yeah how women should be treated but um a very reliable ally for sure definitely has bonds back and uh has a whole goddamn ninja school to uh to help him out with one of the all-time great transitions where he says, my ninja training school cuts to dozens of screaming ninjas. <laughs> it's like, that's what I'm talking about. Somebody has to say, my ninja school, and then cut to all these guys just screaming into the camera. Yeah. And that's a gorgeous location, too. Yeah, a lot of gorgeous locations yeah. in this film. Absolutely. Um, Helga Brandt is a faux Fiona Volpe, is not too compelling, but she could see him by piranhas before too long so again the movie just kind of throws her out to the side because we got we don't have time for this we got to move on um any last thoughts on uh connery and just a final little appraisal of the eon era bond well i do want to say i, I do love donald pleasance as Blofeld. oh we should talk about yeah. pleasance of course it's yeah. the reveal of blofeld finally yeah, yeah. go ahead yeah i, I know I don't think any actor could match the menace of, you know, this faceless voice petting a cat, you know, blithely murdering his own henchman. Um, but I think Pleasance is great. He has just this great face. Uh, that, that scar is iconic. And I think he's one of the all-time great character actors. And I think he does bring this, this sort of um, barely contained psychosis to to Blofeld that I think few actors could have done. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, maybe it's just that I I guess this will lead here to my thoughts on where they should have where they should have where I feel like they should have taken the series at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, because the anonymous Blofeld is such an amazing villain. Yeah, uh, 
to, to move on to the revealing who he is, you really, I, is something I really feel like they should have thought out more. The problem, of course, with these films is that they were really taking them one at a time and not thinking, okay, what are we going to do for the next three movies? You know, it's just kind of, that's why they have so many different actors playing different characters and continuities all over the place. And on the one hand, it keeps it fun, but on the other, it seems like a missed opportunity when they were going to do the big reveal of Blofeld. Uh, this is not an original idea. I have, I've, I've heard other people say this. I've seen it on Twitter. But if they could have packaged You Only Live Twice, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and Diamonds Are Forever as a trilogy, and I don't know, if Connery was this done, just get Lazenby in there for that those three films and have Blofeld be played by the same guy yeah. so that You Only Live Twice introduces Blofeld, on your magic secret service is exactly the way it is now. And then diamonds are forever is the, is bond getting revenge for Tracy's death. I just feel like that would have been just an epic undertaking. Yeah. yeah because they filmed you only live twice and on a managed secret service in reverse order. Um, yes. Merely for the fact that the winter in Switzerland wouldn't have fit in with the production schedule. And so they decided to go with you only live twice instead. So it, it takes the, the energy out of the Blofeld encounter way down. And so in, in, in both films, really. Uh, and so the, the realities of 1960s filmmaking, you know, interfere with what could have been. Yeah, of course. And um, in chronological order, the books as well, that's putting You Only Live Twice in front of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which in the book order comes afterwards and in, at this point obviously they are really throwing the bond books pretty much out the window yeah you know, starting with you only lived uh twice uh where it has it very barely uh, resembles the novel that it's based on um so anyway in terms of pleasance playing blofeld and then turning into telly savals and then turning into charles gray uh is what i consider you know kind of like a, a, i hold that against the productions perhaps unfairly but you know so i kind of hold that against pleasance in a way i again i understand the iconography you know he became dr evil for god's sake you know i mean people know that face and he kind of did what he could with this role but at the same time it just doesn't have the impact i think that maybe it should have yeah i agree yeah uh one final thought on this film um charles gray was 39 when making this movie 39 yeah, he, uh-huh. he he looks fifty nine. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, that is surprising. Um, last thing I'm going to say is that it's cool that Monty Penny gets the last word in this movie. I don't think that happens too often. Oh uh, yeah. So Lois Maxwell, well. great Lois goddamn Maxwell. legend. Oh, absolutely. It's incredible, and it's funny that she. I was just reading she came in. I guess they thought about her playing. Sylvia Trench in, in Dr. No was the original idea. And she was at a point where her husband, who was a really well-known actor, was seriously ill. And so she had to be out of work for a long amount of time and was desperate to get a part in a movie. And that's the reason that she went to Broccoli, who was a friend of her husband's. And he basically said, well, you can play either Sylvia Trench or Monty Penny. And so instead of playing the sexy, you know, seductress, she went with Monty Penny which I think is really yeah. instinctive on her part. Good choice. Yeah. And yeah, and that is another thing that the Broccoli's did frequently is that they really did do personal favors for their friends and helped out people who needed help. And it's nice that 
the filmmaking industry isn't full of you know people manipulating each other and stabbing each other in the back. There people do nice things sometimes. Yeah, Broccoli's like Karen Bay, right? I mean, he has you know his daughter, you know, ended up being in the business with him. His son-in-law, uh, Michael Wilson. Um, so it's cool that you know they kind of kept it within the family. Yeah. All right. John, we are at the end of the 60s, 1969. We have reached On Her Majesty's Secret Service, in which the role of James Bond has been taken over by an Australian commercial actor named George Lazenby. Um, and this is going to end the 60s on James Bond. Um, this film, for a long time for me, was a joke. Um, just my perception of everyone's thought of this movie, the fact that it was the only one with Lazenby that everyone considered him such a step down from Connery uh, that nobody took it seriously. So I almost didn't give this movie any mind for a long time. I just kind of thought like, it's the one that they kind of fucked up because, you know, they hired some nobody and it was the only one he did. And uh, you know, and that was kind of it. And so then they kind of got Connery back and we're like, okay, we screwed up. Let's try to get back to what we were doing. So it's funny to have that thought for many years and then to see it as an adult and fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great movie. Um, it became one of my favorite Bond movies after watching it again a few years back. Uh, it's one that I love to revisit. It's, um, I would say that four out of five of my favorite Bond movies are played straight. They're, they're pretty straight. They're pretty grounded. They're not gadget heavy. As much mm -hmm. as I love the Roger Moore era, I love when they make the decision, the conscious decision after having something as just batshit crazy as you only live twice to say, let's really tap into an emotional story and have it be uh, an intimate film about this very specific small set of characters. And even though there's going to be lots of uh, skiing and machine guns and hypnotism and all the kinds of crazy stuff, it's really going to be a very personal story. And that's what I really appreciate about this film on top of the fact that it's an incredibly well-made movie. Yeah. I really do appreciate it, it being taken back to basics after the, the extravagance of you only live twice. And you know, that was largely due to Peter Hunt, a uh, long-term editor, first time director. Um, uh, Terrence Young actually, uh, yeah, long-term editor, first time director, uh, Peter Hunt. Uh, he really brought a very conscious, uh, grounded approach to this film. Um, yeah, there's very little gadget tree. Uh, I don't like, they're sort of, they do sort of make fun of Q in the beginning when he has that radioactive lint. It's just, oh, miniaturization <laughs> is the, is the wave of the future. And then we don't see Q again. It, it's sort of like taking the piss out of his role in the franchise, which I think is unfair to the character and the Desmond Llewellyn. Mm. Um, but also like, there's That's a interesting. lot of I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. It's funny, I hadn't thought of it like that. I guess I always kind of thought of it as just a, a mission statement for the rest of the movie to say, we're not going to go that route with this one. Mm -hmm. And to kind of politely put them on the sideline. Um, but no, it's interesting. Yeah, please go on. Yeah. But for, for me, the big thing is I just think Lazenby is a charisma black hole. Like, I don't buy him at all as james bond like his physicality is great he he does the, those fights great i don't think connery could have done those fights at that stage in his career um 
but you know, for a third of the film, he's dubbed by another actor. Um, I don't get why, you know, when we, when we get to Pisa Gloria, which is, you know, again, a great location and, uh, great sets um why these 12 women are like over the moon for him instantly because he's pretending to be a gay man um yeah i I just don't buy any of that stuff Uh, um so while there is like great sequences a lot of things to love in this film i I just can't get behind lazenby as bond fair enough yeah i get that and and the the hillary Bray, bray stuff is Kind of unfortunate. It's almost in the turning Bond Japanese area. Um, Especially because the strongest element is Diana Rigg, I think, who's luminescent in in this film. Like, every outfit she has is spectacular. She's so charismatic. She's beautiful. She goes toe-to-toe with Bond at every opportunity. Um, And... whenever Hillary Bray is on screen, we lose her. So not only is this dumb subplot going on that doesn't, you know, have much impact on the film in the end, your strongest element of the film is gone. So I, I just think that it really brings the momentum down. Fair points. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the stuff of his Gloria is not as good. <laughs> as the everything else in the movie um it's it's a downside i'm willing to acknowledge that uh, and also why would blofeld not recognize bond if we're meant to believe that the continuity comes straight from you yeah. only live twice even with the glasses on this is like a super it's just like a superman sort of situation where with the glasses on he's completely unrecognizable doesn't seem like i i do like lazenby outside of hillary bray though I do like him as Bond, and the physicality is off the off the charts. I think the fight scenes in this are more brutal than anything that's been done in the series so far. I think I really believe that these guys are tossing them, tossing each other across the rooms and breaking tables and everything like that. It's uh, it's like a desperate fighting. It almost feels like on the level of Casino Royale all those years later. But I think a lot of it has to do with Lazenby really selling it sells moments where he's as where as bond he's nervous he's scared uh where he knows that he has to fight his way out of a situation or be killed i think that that's a really effective thing to bring into bond this sort of open woundness uh that sort of allows him i think this relationship with Teresa with the um i want to call her emma peel uh did you just say her name or diane rick character diane rick yeah yeah yeah. Well, and and I think yeah, there is definitely, especially with the the scenes with Tracy, uh, there is a definite insecurity that Lazenby brings to the role that I think definitely Connery uh, wouldn't have brought. And I think there is the sort of knee jerk reaction. Well, if if Connery was in this movie, um, it'd been the best Bond ever. And I I understand that sentiment. But then if Connery was in this film. Diana Rigg probably wouldn't be in this film because Connery usually had sort of say in who the Bond girl would be and and the dynamic between her and, and Bond would be totally different. Um, I don't know if you could believe that Connery's Bond would get married, um, but I think you can believe that this very young, open wound sort of spy would want to get married to Tracy, who is also... Um, 
sporting many open wounds herself. I don't quite understand what she sees in Bond because she seems to understand that her father sort of put Bond like in front of her, like marry my daughter, please, James, and then mm. I'll help you with your spy work. So I don't know what her attraction is. I think it's him. probably just like in From Watch with Love. I think she's interested because she knows it's a trap. Oh, okay. <laughs> And and honestly, the scene where um, they come upon the barn um, and you know spend a night in the hayloft, I think that is honestly one of the sweetest um, Bond encounters uh, in this series, at least so far. Absolutely. I mean, just her showing up at the ice rink when they're zeroing in on him, and he Bond just sits down. Yeah. Like he is waiting to die, basically. Like he's kind of been completely cornered and is helpless. And then she shows up and he finds this, you know, sudden will to escape and to live and to go on. I mean, I think, you know, that's a really beautiful moment. And I think from that point on, the film is untouchable. The film is just great from that point on. And when done well, Bond in the Snow is just perfect. Like I, I love, I love Bond skiing, and I know the the sort of rear projection stuff is cheesy, but it it makes me feel good. Yeah, me too. I do. I love that stuff, and the, certainly the rear projection is not any worse than some of the stuff from the previous movies. Yeah. Um. Yeah, those scenes are really good. It's like you said, Peter Hunt is just steps up as an action director. Clearly he's gotten, has learned a lot from editing the previous films and uh, just makes a, makes a really compelling film. Even, even the flawed scenes have their moments of intrigue that are really interesting. And the, there's a great shot where uh, they find his uh, sidekick scaling up the, the mountain and they've captured him and it's a, shot going up on Blofeld with the sun behind him. Yeah. It's a great way to show this like intimidating figure uh, in a, you know, banal situation in a banal uh, uh, location. So there's just a lot of great directorial touches. I think that added this movie and uh, obviously the very final scene is just uh, it's heartbreaking and yeah. perfectly directed. Yeah. Yeah. There's some great aerial photography of the skiing stuff that was filmed with, um, with a cameraman actually hanging under a helicopter. Um, the, the music is great. That Honor Majesty's Secret Service theme is fantastic. Uh, All the time in the world is a great song. Uh, I think uh, Louis Armstrong, Lou Armstrong called, uh, can Barry personally to thank him for the song. And so that's, you know, high praise or John Barry. Sorry. Um, it's one of the most beautiful songs ever. I love that song. Yeah. And I, I'd say that there's one flaw in the end of the movie. I feel like they should have had that song over the end credits. Yeah, I agree. Cause I, they, they really, that is a big tone shift with bond crying over his dead bride to bond music. Yeah. I mean, I imagine, you know, one of two things, either they didn't want the you know audience to start slitting their wrists after this heartbreaking scene followed by this heart shattering song, or they just wanted to be like, don't worry, everybody, the next Bond movie will be fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to like leave people on like a down note of, is this what the series is going to be from now on? Uh, just a series of downers like life. Um so yeah, so they should have used, but I think they should have used that. It's an amazing song, and the um, and John Barry's theme I think is my favorite piece of music written for James Bond by him. So, 
great stuff. Yes, definitely underrated. Um, while I'm thinking about it, um, speaking of underrated songs, have you heard the alternate Thunderball theme? Um, the one by Johnny Cash? Yes, yes. I have, yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure, I just want to get that out there that there is a great song by Johnny Cash called Thunderball that everybody should look up. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, I like it. I'm not a big fan of the Tom Jones song, honestly. Yeah, me neither. So, mainly because I don't understand what he strikes like Thunderball means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, is oh okay. Yeah. Is this the only Bond film with a curling scene? <laughs> uh yes. Okay. Yes, it is. I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping for more with no time to die. It's not too Daniel, late. Yeah, Daniel Craig curling. I'm, I'd be into that. They could bring it back. They could do it. Yeah. Um, anything else on this one? Um, let's get into wrap up mode here. What are your thoughts on '60s Bond movies overall? Just the uh, I'd asked before we uh, didn't get to talk about assessing Connery, giving him a report card for this phase of his Bond career. Well, I mean, Connery gets an A. Uh, he's not perfect. Um, n- none of the Bond movies, except maybe uh, From Rush With Love, are perfect. Um, but he was the man who could make Bond a global phenomenon. Um, he came in um, having done uh, some TV work, uh, a-, a Disney film called Darby Go and the Little People, that I think is actually worth seeing. It's very charming. Only um, one of two films my dad admitted scared him as a kid. Wow, interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, there are some like real creepy ghosts in that movie. The end, um, where the banshee comes for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so he um, he really embodied Bond for a generation, and he he was the one who made this a global phenomenon. There, there, there are some amazing, you know, best of generation talent. Uh, behind and in front of the camera, but I think without Connery, uh, I don't know if Bond would be where it is today. So, a, a, a for Connery without a doubt. Yeah, I gotta give it to the guy. I mean, while I would say he's not my personal favorite Bond, I 100% concede that Bond would not be a thing if they hadn't cast Sean Connery. I mean, the, the carriage, the hairy chest, you know, the confidence. It's all Connery. So I love this. I love him. I love him as Bond. Certainly when he was, you know, willing to show up for the movies. Uh, even though in general, I, I like to say I prefer a more mature Connery. Give me Robin and Mary and give me the Molly McGuire's, yeah. the man who would be king, Last Crusade, Highlander, Hunt for Red October, right? Not Entrapment. That's too old. Back it up. <laughs> but uh I, I like the the the, the gray beard on the on the guy. It's weird. somewhere between uh, "You Only Live Twice" and Robin and Marion. He went from looking ten years older than he actually was to ten years younger than he actually was, and it took him growing a gray beard and being bald to have that happen for some reason. Well, I think he just had to grow into that confidence, you know, to yeah. be willing to look older. I mean, I think you know he's the toupees and the the makeup weren't doing it anymore. He just had yeah. to adapt a new, a new look and it worked amazing when he, once he was willing to embrace that. Yeah. And, um, and, and if anybody's really interested in Connery as an actor, uh, 1965's the Hill is an amazing movie. Absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah. We got a real glimpse into the power Connery had as an actor and not as a movie star. Uh, so highly recommend that movie. Me too. Phenomenal film. Great Sydney Lumet movie. Yeah. 
All right, Mr. Arminio, I got to say thank you so much. And I got to say, uh, unfortunately, I remembered my question, my trivia question from earlier. So I'm going to bring it up again. Have you had time to think about what Bond movie other than Dr. No does not feature a helicopter? Um, take a wild stab at it. If live, you and let hit, live and let die. You were off by one. Ah, crap. The man with the golden gun. Okay. They have a flying car in that one, but no <laughs> helicopter. That's the one. So unfortunately, uh, I'll edit that out. You want people to know that, you know, that's just going to be embarrassing. <laughs> that's going to be embarrassing not to know that very specific. And I'm a walking embarrassment, John. <laughs> um, it's uh, funny. We conceived of this, uh, doing this together obviously in anticipation of no time to die, uh, which then got moved back obviously to the end of the year. And maybe it's shallow of me to uh, admit this, but that was really when the current situation really hit me when they moved this giant film that we were expecting in April uh, all the way back to November. I mean, I guess that's just what broke that broke my radar, you know, when like finally it, when it moved into my pop cultural awareness of movies, that's when like things really was like, Oh, this shit is serious. Like this is, I, uh, you know, you heard re- conflicting reports here and there, but like they moved the bond film back that, that means something. Yeah. I mean, as soon as they announced the release date for no time to die, I, I texted my friend Barbara and says, I've called off work that Friday you're going to do that too. And I'm going to take you to this movie. Um, so yeah. So when that was, so when Otunda Dad's release date was moved, it did sort of like, you know, break my heart that like, uh, Oh wow. Uh, the world is in trouble. The world is going to change because these, you know, big, you know, multinational corporations are willing to move these, you know, profit sectors for a pandemic. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. Big deal. So uh, I, I mentioned that only to say getting a chance to go back and watch these movies again in preparation for this uh, has been a real help for me, you know, to kind of take my mind off. I mean, ultimately these films are, they're escapist fair. They really are. They, you know, you really get wrapped up in them. Uh, the entertainment of these films really speaks to your soul, you know, like the the the, the familiarity is one thing, but just just fun, just following Bond along in his missions and going on to these, in these worlds. It's just, it's something that is unequaled, I think by any other franchise. And so um, that's another reason why I just want to say thanks for, you know, uh, doing this with me and uh, giving me the opportunity to do that in this uh, time where we're all kind of, you know, it's easy to fall back into depression. No, it's, it's been my pleasure. It's an absolute honor. Um, you and Mr. Funderburg and everybody you have on on the Pink Smoke are always such goddamn geniuses, uh, and so it's a little intimidating to be here for the first time. But I really appreciate it, and it's it's uh, been a privilege. Uh, so I so and not only that, I get to dive into the world of you know this silver uh, debonair, witty silver servant taking it to dickhead billionaires so it's been absolute joy john thank you so much thank you sir and i'll just end by saying this what is the pink smoke compared to john armidio